Welcome to the Rational Standard Podcast, Quarantine Edition. I'm your host and the managing editor of the Rational Standard, Nicholas Woodsmith. Joining me today is Hugo Kruger, a structural engineer currently residing in the capital of Baguettes, Paris, France. How are you, Hugo? I'm good, thank you. Yourself, although I've got COVID-19, <laughs> so, uh, so I might be lying on my deathbed. Um, I must actually, well, we'll return to that later. I'm good, but I must say I'm currently living in... Um, a nice little test case of the Soviet Union 2 in Africa. Um, so I'm not sure who's um, more unlucky, you with a virus that will 100% kill you, or um, me living in South Africa with the ANC government. <laughs> that is a very deep question. I think it requires thorough analysis. Um, I'm not so sure because the French government has done almost everything possible to mismanage the situation. Um, they had the experience of the Italian ex- government and of the Germans and everything, and the South Koreans and the Chinese. And then they chose to implement the worst of both models, which was Italy versus China. So um, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's actually sometimes a little bit comforting to know that uh, some governments will always do the worst possible thing. There's a sense of comfort in that consistency, isn't there? Well, uh... I, I always take the view of um, what was the comedian, George Carlin, and he always made the point that my first assumption is I don't believe a single thing that my government tells mm. me. And uh, that has been a principle that I've used <laughs> throughout my life, and it seemed to seemed to have worked very well. It's actually very, by using that logic, it's actually very easy to understand what um, where a lot of governments come from. Obviously, there's some governments which are more skilled at being insidious. And I would say the United States government is actually probably one of the examples of a state which is very good at hiding its true intentions. But by using George Collins' logic with, like, let's say, the South African government, just presume the opposite. <laughs> and then you well, basically know what happens. <laughs> well, I, I mean, if I was uh, George Collins and I were to be living in South Africa, I would find it very difficult to come up with new jokes because the, the politicians do it for us all the time. I mean, last night I was looking at the South African ministers giving speeches. And I believe the trade minister, um, you know, was the only one who had a decent speech. And unfortunately, whatever he said was not decent at all. You know, so it, it's very difficult to to not laugh at these people. And being on top of that, we should not think that we are alone in the world. I've been to quite a few countries, and the more I travel, the more I realize that I like people, but I hate governments. Um, yeah. You find this in Iran, the Middle East. Um, that's another example of a government who mismanages the situation. France, we will get into that exceptionally mismanaged, this one in my view. Uh, then you have efficient governments um, to the extent that they can be, such as Germany and Scandinavian governments. And, you know, the Germans take efficiency to the point that they overdo efficiency. You know, so it's, a, it, it's quite comical once you understand how governments work. It's... Um... Talking about um, what you said earlier about um, liking people but disliking government. That, um, so I wrote an article. Uh, it was published this morning. Um, the, uh, the days are just blending into one with this lockdown, so I have to <laughs> be extremely. I have to just check the dates all the time. Um, but I start uh, in the article. I mentioned if you've read it, um, my intellectual journey with this pandemic and the lockdown. And um, a big part, and I must say that like quite a few of my fellow libertarians, I have been irritated with how some people have been dealing with the quarantine. But um, if you've read the article, you know that that doesn't necessarily lead to the rest of my views. But um, what do you think about the idea that there is, is there some sort of room for government enforced lockdown basically to ensure that idiots don't ruin it for the rest of us so um i think you've answered that question uh, idiots who are the idiots you know it's the ones the government's considered to be the idiots um the government enforced lockdowns work in totalitarian societies it works in china it didn't even work properly in south korea in south korea they were just proactive okay it's not worked anywhere else and the reason why it worked in china is because you saw footages of soldiers picking up people, throwing in the houses, knocking the doors closed. There's also uh, coming out cases now where the people in China were treated with medicine that were untested and they most likely died of the treatment and not the medicine. And to the extent that we can trust the results of China, and I think actually that's the only thing which seems to be consistent, is that the statistics coming out of China seem to follow the log normal distributions. You know, they might be underestimated, but that, you know, other countries also underestimate the statistics. So yes, confinement, they can work in China. Uh, they didn't work in Iran, they didn't work in Italy, they didn't work in Spain, they didn't work, they're not, not going to work in South Africa. Um, 
You know why? Because uh, I have now been 12 days in confinement. I've already broken the law three to four times by just going to the shopping mall, forgetting that my hat needed to have my day pass. It looked like an apartheid don't pass to go to the shopping mall to show to the police. Um, I see now from out of my window, it's now nighttime, but this afternoon, kids are playing in the in the street. Um, people are out doing about the day. Um, and we're all probably infecting each other while we're in confinement. So none of these things work because once they, they not take into account human nature, humans are going to come out because you cannot sit at home all day long. My prediction for South Africa is I give it two weeks, everyone's going to be fed up. All the people who are self-righteous right now telling me I made a mistake and I'm killing people by going outside, I want to see them in one week coming back. And I bet they're at least going to go out for a walk. Mm. I agree with you. Before this lockdown started, I predicted two weeks. Um, on day one, I smelled uh, tires being burnt by protesters who were refusing that's, to be locked down. Okay, that's very South African, though. <laughs> so I was actually saying, well, I was two weeks too late. Uh, but it's still running. And this... Uh, so... I am on your side here in that I think it's going to last two weeks. I think it's unenforceable. But there's a hang of a lot of um, rumors going around and quite sub- with a lot of substantiation behind it that the army is going to be brought in for an exorbitant cost for three months to enforce a three-month form of lockdown. Um, I think that's completely impossible to enforce, especially so- seeing... yeah. So they, they, they are talking of doing that in France as well, and the lawyers are really to say that is a violation of constitutional rights. Um, but let's let's talk about the first thing. We're now saying a lockdown. The first question, does it work? Now, I've seen statistical models, and uh, I think we'll get into statistical models a bit later. It shows that during a lockdown, assuming everyone respects the rules, uh, you know, as you and I obviously don't, um, we're all going to stay in the house. I don't leave the house anywhere. Okay, you don't leave the house. Uh, my behavior has not changed regardless. <laughs> Okay, except for except for a few gamers, um, you know, who are now having their fantasy world. I suspect most people would like to go outside and have party and have fun. Um, but the reason why it doesn't work is very obvious, and it's something which I saw on a on YouTube actually. I think it's three Browns. The guy's name is a mathematician. And he ran simplified statistical models where he shows the problem for lockdown is we have one central location called the supermarket. So now you're infecting everyone in the supermarket. You're actually concentrating infection in the supermarket. And according to his basic statistical models, it actually increases the rate of infection by six. Mm. So just based on that assumption doesn't work. And that doesn't even take into account all the people that's going to break the law what's regardless. Um, then we can look at countries that have now gone through the lockdown experience. But I think before we need to understand it, we need to understand how this virus grows exponentially. So an exponential curve, um, you know, means that it uh, increases as a function of itself. So uh, generally every four days, the amount of people infected by this virus increases. And the assumption was if we all stay home, we would flatten the curve, reduce the spread of the virus. Um, the reason why the virus dies, okay, which the people don't tell you, is um, even though the virus increases exponentially, also the amount of people it can infect increase, decreases exponentially. So once a virus goes through the entire population, um, it activates the immune system. And as soon as it hits what we call the inflection point, uh, or the, when the curve goes from a smiley face to a sad face, um, the virus basically dies, or it's about to die, because there's not enough people left to infect. Um, and throughout all these statistical analysis in the media, nobody has talked about the human immune system to this virus. A uh, few people have talked about group herd Im- immunity. And um, yeah, so the thing that I suspect is confinement to the extent that we pretend it's going to work is only going to delay the agony. We are all going to get infected by this virus unless we are China that can track people's abilities. And I don't want to imitate that mm. solution. That doesn't take into account the economic fallout that's going to come after it. I think it's been a monumentally stupid decision by all governments. And let's look at the countries that have not imposed a, 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 um, a, a confinement. Sweden. Sweden reached the inflection points, I believe, three weeks before Italy did. Nobody talks about the fact that Sweden had absolutely no confinement. They treated people like adults. They said, if you're sick, stay home and don't infect anyone else. And guess what? People didn't do it. The Netherlands had some mixed model to the extent that I think they had a lockdown. They're in a lockdown for a few days now. But it seems that they've already reached inflection point. Um, Italy and Spain have only prolonged the agony. And I believe Italy's already passed inflection point. Spain, from what I saw today, is very close to its inflection point. And France isn't there yet. So the chaos is not over in the three countries that have imposed a lockdown. The countries that haven't had one are over the inflection point. So what does this tell you? Treat people like adults. Tell them if you're sick, stay home. And most likely, most of us will be reasonable and say, okay, I'm not going to infect my fellow human beings. 
Um, actually, going back to the um, something you said much much earlier than this, the problem which which is the fact of the supermarket where people are congregating and getting infected, and uh, one of the policies of the South African lockdown is that only big retailers can stay open. So there's no food deliveries, no couriers. There's um, all the spa shops close. So it's basically uh, corporatist heaven. Only Woolworths, Pick and Pay, the big quick spas can stay open. Um, yes. And all you're doing is take it, making some people who would have gone to smaller places, you know, and not get infected or not risk spreading infection to uh, uh, spreading the infection and putting them in an area where there's a higher chance of them getting infected. Um, honestly, this entire, uh, especially when I saw that, um, I think my entire thing where I went to from you know, maybe a lockdown, you know, could be possibly justified to this is stupid, was when I saw that they uh, said no, no food deliveries because I'm like. What the hell? Is it like eight? Okay, I, yeah. I must say South Africa's lockdown enforcement rules are blatantly stupid. France's yeah. is to a degree stupid, okay? The French at least allow people to have smokes because everyone in France smokes. I mean, if you take people's cigarettes out, they're going to get the Muran. There'll be another <laughs> revolution. There'll <laughs> <laughs> no, smoke, you know? South Africa wants to take our beer, our alcohol smokes. In France, there's no restriction as to what I can buy in the mm. supermarket. Okay, they at least thought of that. Surprisingly, the French haven't, impl- haven't um, imposed cost controls yet, or price controls. Um, and I've been surprised, you know, that they were a bit more clever than this. They realized that price controls are necessary mm. during a crisis. Why? Because it becomes more expensive to have foods and goods and services. So by increasing the price or by forcing it to a certain level, you're going to have food shortages. So this is the thing that worries me about South Africa. And then just the unenforceability of this in South Africa. Um, you already see footages of policemen losing their tempo on the street. And you hear, you know, anecdotal conditions of people who've actually beaten the policemen back. So um, South Africans are naturally very resistant. And just another thing, South Africa Africa is now in two days of the lockdown. Uh, France, it's already been 12 days. Um, what I've been seeing in France, and this worries me, is that the police in France, and the we don't have the army on the streets, not yet, um, they are more paranoid than the people. And this is one thing that I think people are not talking about, is that the soldiers and the army are getting paranoid, especially when everyone hearing is hearing that the virus is coming and we're going to get uh, you know, all infected. And the policemen are yelling at people, they're getting authoritarian. Um, you know, it's not going to end very well, um, you know, because you, you see footages of police in Marseille beating people up. You see it in South Africa. I saw footages in Vintuk, Namibia. You see some disgusting display of authority in India where the people are um, being told to roll over while they're being hitting from a stick and they have to roll in two meters from each other. I, I don't understand the logic behind that, but I don't understand the logic between a lot of policemen. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's the, it gave governments and authoritarians a good opportunity to now show that they've got power. And I hope that the people who have called for the lockdown, you know, even if you disagree with me on statistical models and things like that, would at least contemplate that you've given people power. And how do you get it back afterwards? I think my um, so I've been very, very pessimistic about coming out of this and saying that we're going to uh, be coming out of this more authoritarian than we went into it. But um, my mom actually told me when we we're just talking about this and being pessimistic together, I get my anxiety from her. We both are deeply pessimistic it's a terrible combination but she actually said that she's been noticing people that she never thought would ever criticize government criticize authority you know from people who are either socialists or just you know very hardcore government worshiping conservative government worshiping conservatives that they are starting to doubt the state and they're starting to realize that the police aren't our friends they're just about a lot of them are just psychopaths who have a badge and now the lockdown is just giving them the opportunity to reveal their psychopathy. And um, maybe there yeah, but is... I've seen the opposite yeah. thing as well. Eh? I've seen people who are against the state have now just given into their panic and fear. And I said, yes, we need a lockdown. So I yeah. hope that the people you're talking about are far more numerous and they're going to be more voiceful after this. Because I, I was listening to a podcast by the writer Peter Hitchens, um, you know, some this last week. And he said a very important thing where he said the big mistake that the Western countries may realize they made during the Iraq war was that they did not eliminate doubt. And the doubt was obviously the weapons of mass destruction and all these things. I believe that many of us who are speaking out now, and I include myself for this, and you and, and a lot of people in France are saying the same thing in England, um, that you know we continue to do so even though we know that we are against public opinion 
Oh, I, or maybe I'm against media opinion because we don't know what public opinion is. And that the doubt becomes evident at least afterwards. You know, um, in a sense, it's to let history judge the country, but it's also hopefully to end the agony which is going to come. Um, I think that the big thing about understanding which sides are more numerous, uh, the statists or the, um, well, anti-statists, uh, is that we won't know until it's over. And the problem is, I suspect that even if the anti-statists are more numerous, um, that the problem with libertarians and classical liberals in general is that it is a passive ideology. It's an ideology of we don't know what's the best the best way, so we're going to let other people or other people make their own decisions, and that doesn't appeal to the the modus operandi of government. People who uh, the, who work in politics and people who want to look to their government want strong men they want fascism they want um I, actually i had a discussion with someone um the other day where i basically said that the government system which actually the major would win in most countries around the world is basically taking um a premier football club and making it into an authoritarian government <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that actually worries me, but um, I think you might be, you might be right in that way. That's one reason why I have not given up my views in a belief in a monarchy, despite being an Afrikaner, by the way, because I believe that the celebrity status maybe that should be put in power, and we choose one person. We say that's the ridiculous one everyone can get to like, you know. <laughs> um, actually, which Afrikaner living today should be the king of? Um, and also, which kingdom would it be? Would it be the Orange Free State, Kingdom well, of the Orange Free has, State, or Kingdom of the Transvaal? It, it has to be something ridiculous. So I'm, I'm guessing Steve Wolfmer and Jim Palm or something of the state. You know, that's the only guy that you know have idiots following. What, but, what's you that, know, what's we, that rapper with the oversized hat? I've got no idea. Um, oh, damn. Jack Parrow, isn't it? Jack Parrow. Ja King Jack Parrow. You know, I think more English people like these songs than Afrikaans people, but... <laughs> <laughs> Probably, actually. I think that South Africans have terrible taste, I've realized, after the past few days. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, okay, that's you know, deviating from the point. Um, yeah, so let's get to the first thing about this thing. So, statistically, um, just for the listeners, um, this virus is going to come for you, okay? Mm -hmm. It is not going to kill you. You have a greater chance of dying from real life than dying from this virus. Okay. If you look at the statistics, everyone is going to Worldometer, and I hope they can have their pages open. Uh, the only countries that can tell you an accuracy of um, how many people are going to die from the statistics is uh, basically Germany and South Korea. And the reason is they test everyone. Germany does 500,000 tests per week. Okay. It's enormous industrial capacity. I think it's a bit of a waste of doing that many tests. Um, South Korea did something like a thousand, I think it was a hundred thousand per week, you know, during time of the virus and they nipped it in the butt. And the reason is, um, so if you look at these statistics, you find that death rate is less than 1%. And there was a Stanford study that I put in my rational standard article that puts the death rate at 0.6%. Now, the reason the governments overreacted is that they were advised by epidemiologists. Now, I've come to hate economists in my life because I believe that they speculate. I've come to hate, um, you know, epidemiologists recently because I've looked at the way they, they do their methodology. And basically, they have statistical models. So the guy who advised the UK government was a guy called Neil Ferguson. And his initial estimates was that 500,000 people would die. Okay, half a million people die. That's reasonable to close down your government okay the problem was that he had no data to make that prediction then he revised these calculations and it was 20,000 now from 500,000 to 20,000 is a big mistake you know it's a, it's a big fuck up um, that's the difference between buying more ventilators and getting more medical staff as opposed to closing down society um, this week is revised it again to 5,000 people might die from this virus. And I suspect by the end of next week, it's going to be 3,000 people. Now, 3,000 people might sound like a lot, but take into account that 1,200 people die in the UK per day. Mm. So this virus is not killing more people than would ordinarily die per day. The Swiss Propaganda Institute had something similar. They reckoned that the people who die in Italy, the deaths are counted wrongly because they have no more time to count the bodies. They count everyone who dies as dying of coronavirus. Um, so their figures are inflated for the deaths. And then you take the other problem that most countries don't test at the same rate as Germany and South Korea. So that's where you see very high um, percentages of people dying. I think Wild the meter is showing me that 18% of all close cases die. Now, that's a horrible figure if 18% of the world would die from this virus. But 
it does not take into account that most people who have this virus, like myself, have got very light symptoms. And um, so they're not part of statistics. So your denominator is much smaller. That means your, your percentage is much higher. So this is the scary thing is that the um, media is not reporting. Well, I believe even the, the epidemiologists did not look at how do we test the data. If you actually test everyone, you will find a lot fewer people die of this virus. And just take into account the 0.6 figure, that was what I wrote to my paper uh, last week. The same study I saw today, apparently it's revised, it might be lower. 0.2, which is the common flu. So more or less the same amount of people that die of flu every year who die of the virus. Now, how many people die of flu? I believe it's something like 600,000 people per year die of flu. Hmm. That sounds like a lot of people, but if you take into account every day 150,000 people die, it means that a lot of people die. You know, That's about the only thing conclusion you can make of all these hmm. things. I think a lot of people just... Um, the What makes... So, uh, ah, sorry. So... You probably know my background isn't mathematics, statistics, or science. I'm a humanities person who con constantly complains about my fellow humanities students and academics. But what I do know, my closest knowledge... It's a sad world you're in. Yeah, I am. It's a very sad world. But um, So my background is history, so my closest knowledge and where I went when the started when i started hearing about this uh, this virus in uh, january was because I, my friends and i have a big interest in weird wacky things around the world and we heard about this virus in early january and we we're like hey this is could potentially concerning but and but mostly it was just us complaining about china inevitably faking their numbers no. um and but my background, uh, my closest background for understanding this thing is history. And um, what make, so I went through um, the Cape Town plague, I went to the Black Death, which is completely imp incomparable. P people, people are comparing this thing to the Black Death. They don't realize pneumonic plague, which is one of the types of plagues, has a 100% fatality rate. If you got it, you died. Um, this is very different. And then um, those were in the days when people didn't bath. Huh? And uh, it's actually quite scary today. The thing about plague is it's easy to not like get it now because of medicines and stuff but if you do still get pneumonic plague today it's still close to 100 percent fatality plague is still oh. terrifying today it's just easier for us to get rid of it because hygiene is a big aspect um that actually goes to a very a fun um, thing that i read now i'm still trying to confirm the polish side of it but i did confirm the milan side of it but basically that two of the main largest um nations that went off, uh, survived the Black Death um, relatively unscathed were the Kingdom of Poland and the city-state uh, Grand Duchy of Milan. Right. And um, the reason was that Poland uh, was one of the few countries which actually accepted the expelled Jew uh, Jews from the rest of Europe, and the Jews brought in a lot of medical and hygiene practices that were applied to uh, people's daily life. So firstly, hygiene was higher. But also, King, uh, Poland's a large place which is quite um, isolated. So there were villages that just never even knew that there was a plague going on because no one traveled there. So the, it was a natural quarantine. That's the same reason Andorra basically had almost no cases. Um, Milan, on the other hand, was in the epicenter Italy, of, of the plague, Italy. And it managed to go off relatively unscathed because the second that they found out that someone was showing any sorts of symptoms they would lock that person and their entire family in their house and burn it to the ground i, I hope you're not advocating that for the i'm not the, my thing is is that i think any decent human being should understand that we shouldn't go for the milan model but the problem is i think that the people are getting stupid and desperate over something which you have suggested could end up just being as concerning as the common flu um and now they want to burn people in their houses but uh the reason i say this is that the thing that makes this virus special is the way people have reacted to it. It is the first proper social media panic over a pandemic. And I think, if anything, this reveals the extreme danger of our, in a way, uh, the extreme danger of the power of the media in our lives. And that's not only the mainstream media, it's also alternative media and it's also social media. So here's the um, way I put a lot of this thinking in. I'm a big follower of James Flynn, who is the father of um, the Flynn effect. You know, it's Guy Quinn, the idea that said every generation is supposed to be having a higher IQ than 
their parents. A lot of people misinterpret that as saying every generation is more intelligent than their parents. Um, and that is a big mistake. What you know, your IQ essentially means is your ability to do rational um, reasoning. And he made a very important statement in one of his videos I saw a few months ago. And he said the problem with the modern world is that we have given people abstract reasoning skills. We can all see through arguments. It's very simple for a millennial guy to see through racism and through hypocrisy, if you will. You know, we, we, I put an argument such as put yourself in the shoes of an Irishman or a black person. And very quickly, you can say that it's absurd to hate them. Um, but what we have been missing is history and has been experienced. And the, the reason is that the way that the people were taught in the past was they were giving lots of facts, but not a way means to interpret them. Now we have the tools to interpret them and we don't know what the facts are. Mm. And if anyone here would look at the Black Death, the first, oh, let's look at the Spanish flu, which everyone mm. cites. Few people know that the second, second wave of the Spanish flu killed more people than the first wave. So my first question to people in France was, we're we all going to go back into our houses. Let's say, assume the con con confinement works. What happens if we go back out? And the way in and the, and the uh, coronavirus, which is so deadly, comes back. Have we thought of that? Are we going to go back in again? You know. Mm. Um, so it, it's obvious that the people have not looked at history as a guideline. Or they just read quickly. Oh, the the Spanish flu killed 50 million people. We must all run into our houses without really understanding what it is. I mean, the bubonic plague. Yes, the Black Death killed a lot of people. We know that was because of hygiene. But have they looked at other crises which we have mm. seen recently? Um, what about SARS? SARS died quickly because the virus was so potent. So obviously this virus cannot be potent because if it was potent, it would kill the host before it could jump. It was the same with Ebola. Um, so, you know, it, it seems to me that people just don't know history, mm. you know, and it's sad. And then obviously social media, you're right on that, played a big role in the panic. And I think people were panicking next to each other. I mean, I saw in France how people in the first week of this, before we went into lockdown, or I think in January already, they were like, this is complete rubbish, like you and me are saying. And slowly but surely, people start panicking around you. And it's sort of like you're running because the crowd is running. Exactly. And before we know it, we are all inside our rooms, inside our homes, and we're like, what the hell have we done? Is this maybe sensible? It's actually exactly like the toilet paper buying panic. It's that we all look scathingly at the people hoarding toilet paper until the shelves are done, and we're like, wait, are we the idiots now because we didn't buy to uh, toilet paper? <laughs> well, the toilet paper one, um, you know, you talk about that thing. The funny thing is I told, uh, I bought my stuff before, the week before the, the lockdown started because I thought it wasn't going to happen. I thought the French would be sensible mm. and, you know, I, well, I couldn't have been more wrong. So anyway, I, the house was relatively stocked up. And the first week I went to the shops, nothing was there. I thought, oh, goodness, there's going to be sure food shortages. So I just bought whatever was left, a few narc and this and that. And that's probably where I got the virus, by the way. Um, the second week of the panic, um, the foods, the, the shelves were stocked up and we had food choices. And the reason is nobody bought them because they all still had food, which they stored for the, for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah. So I, I could get very good deals and fresh narkis and stuff. So my advice to South Africans is don't buy food now, buy it next week. You know, that's on the assumption that the government doesn't uh, destroy their supply chains. And this yeah. it is, is the South African government, you know, let's not give them too much credit. I have been hearing words that there's going to be price controls, but at the moment they haven't been passed because the private sector is, uh, sector is voluntarily controlling their own prices. So, so the, the price control, which made sense to the extent it can, was the D Danish one. They said for one toilet paper you pay, say one, what's it, Kronen, I think they use, and for, um, you know, for two of them you pay a hundred, and that sort of got people rid of the shock, if you will. Like, yeah. okay, I can buy one roll, I can buy one bag, but I'm not going to run out of the shop with a million of them. I don't understand the toilet paper, by the way. It's, it's something weird to me that weird. humans do. Yeah. It, 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 of everything that you can rep that you can replace toilet paper with so much stuff. It's food that you should be focusing on. And then you have all these, yeah, it, it's weird. Well, it's the American if you've, habit. If you've, ever, if you've ever been to India and the Middle East, you know you don't need toilet paper. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. The... Um, Oh, just a little thing for our re uh, uh, listeners. In case you confuse Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist, uh, I don't even want to pronounce their names properly. Epidemiologist, sure. It's Neil E I and A I. Exactly. A -I. So this this is the so this Neil Ferguson, the sciencey boy. Uh, ignore him. He's uh, he's an arsehole. Uh, the Scottish Neil Ferguson who writes history books is the nice is the cool guy. That's important because they're both English. Well, the one's Scottish, but I think a yes. lot of Americans and South African Ooh. listeners might not know the difference. So the, the, the one studied at the Imperial College, and the other one was at Glasgow. And it, it always strikes me by when you talk about that, about the Scots. You know, um, the Scottish people, I think, uh, 
for a thousand years or something, they were the poorest people in the world. And through one generation, they learned English. And then they realized that, you know, we shouldn't hate the English, we should learn from them. And they became most of the engineers throughout the empire. Yeah. And they always struck me as very practical people. <laughs> you know, so um, uh, your Scottish Enlightenment came from there. So yeah, exactly. A lot, a huge part of the British, uh, uh, British philosophy and science, engineering, and all this act comes from the Scottish people. Uh, Winston Churchill has a quote, which I'm not going to even try to paraphrase, but it's basically along the lines of that uh, most of the, Britain's progress is from the Scots. He also has one that there's a, probably a Scot that every battlefield has a Scotsman on it. Um, I would say that I, as a, I'm very anti-nationalist in the sense that I don't identify with any sorts of nations. I actually think that there's a purpose for nationalism, but I've never lived in a nation which I actually feel proud of. Um, but I will say that I do, for some reason, have a sense of ancestral affinity for the Scots. It's, and I know a lot of my friends who have the same. I've never been to Scotland, but there's something about them. There's something about the feeling of being Scottish and knowing what my clan was and the kilts and the uh, bagpipe music, which is just um, which makes me actually understand why a lot of people would feel that culture and nationalism and ancestry is important. Yeah, I think lots of people have a, have a um, you know, I think we're totally getting off point from coronavirus, but lots of people have a sense of belonging, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some people like going to play darts in a club. Some people like to a drinking club. Some people like rugby. I mean, I'm an Afrikaner and I've never understood the fanaticism about rugby. You know, I come, I, I was, I'm a Blue Bull supporter out of, to protect myself in Pretoria, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, um, but I've never understood those some things. But, you know, it makes sense for people. It doesn't harm, so, you know, they can go for it. As long as it doesn't harm, I'm okay with that. Just getting back on the coronavirus. Yeah. So, you, um, you mean flu? You, yes. <laughs> call me Corona. <laughs> call me, call me Corona. Kong flu. Yes. So I've got Kong flu. Um, to tell the people my symptoms, the first sign you have when you've got a symptom, or you've got or the first symptom you have is that um, you lose your sense of taste and smell. But when you have that, you should technically already be getting the treatment. Um, but in France, they made it illegal to self-medicate with chloroquine. Okay, and I'll get into chloroquine now. So basically the advice in France from doctors, it's suck it up until you are in the hospital. And if you are in the hospital, then we will give you chloroquine, which is the treatment, as opposed to giving it early. So um, first symptom is you lose your taste of smell. The second symptom is the next day afterwards, I had a flippin' hell of a headache, and then my fever starts going up and my lungs start burning. Okay, so it feels something like a, between a, a pneumonia and a malaria. Then the third day, the fever, was, the headache was gone, but the fever continues. And the fever has been continuing since then. It's now been six days since I've seen the doctor, since I lost my um, taste and my smell. So it's about six, seven days ago I was infected by somebody, most likely at the supermarket, by the way. Um, then afterwards, the fifth day is when my breath got a bit short. Okay. So then um, I felt like I was collapsing when going outside. And I realized it wasn't that I wanted to collapse because I was lacking oxygen. It was that because this virus is unique, it infects your, you know, in your nose and your throat. And I suspect it goes into your tube of estafias and then you lose your sense of balance. And there was a report from the UK Ear, Nose and Throat Spe uh, Specialist Society, which said something along those lines. But I, I mean, I'm not a medical doctor. I don't understand these things. But I, you feel very dizzy when you have the fever. And then um, now my lungs have stopped, stopped burning. And by the way, I don't have an appetite. And my advice just to people is when you don't have your own appetite, please eat. Because I made the mistake of not eating yesterday. And maybe that contributed to me wanting mm. to collapse. Today I'm fine, you know. So... Um, then also, I've been getting very cranky, but I suspect that's because I'm angry at the French government. Mm. You know, and, the government. <laughs> and the South African government. And the government, which I thought would screw this up, actually did very well. Um, by the way, I want to take a bet. I believe the government who's going to deal the best of, out of all of this is not going to be Germany, China, or South Korea, which everyone holds up as models, or even Sweden. Sweden's doing very well. It's going to be Senegal. Senegal. And the reason is I want to go into what? Senegal, the African country of Senegal, would you believe it? I want to take that bet. It's it's a not a too risky bet. Why is that? The reason is that Senegal's government is being advised by, first of all, a virologist, an expert in infectious diseases. Now, take into account epidemiologists, and I discovered this throughout reading, you know, doing my own research in the past few weeks, they don't necessarily know a lot about infectious diseases. And you would hope that a guy in advising the government would know anything about the infection that we're getting. But it seems that they just know about the spread of the virus, and it ends up that they are doing statistical models, running it, and then making lots of assumptions. And um, I work with statistics on a daily basis. Anyone who's done trying to do a curve fit with a logistic curve, 
You know, it's uh, the mathematical equation is half minus 10 hyperbolic h, I believe, um, hyperbolic hx. That curve is very sensitive to data. So it depends on your initial assumption goes up or down. You cannot make any predictions without data. This is the mistake they made in the Imperial College. Um, so yeah, let's go. So say Senegal has got a virologist advising them. And then I want to get to the article I wrote, which was there's an interesting doctor in the south of France whose name is Didier Raoult. And if there's anyone who should get a Nobel Prize for common sense, it should be this doctor. Okay, uh, Marseille to date has uh, very low death rates of people in their hospitals, and especially his hospital. And the reason is he came across this amazing drug, which was tweeted by Donald Trump, called chloroquine. Now, chloroquine is an old malaria drug, and what it essentially does is, uh, to my understanding, it makes your blood more alkaline, and this stops the virus from reproducing. And he was saying, guys, we can prove that the, with chloroquine that the viral load gets killed. It doesn't treat you. So in other words, if you're in ICU and you're on a respirator, chloroquine is probably going to kill you, but it's going to kill the virus inside of you as well. So his argument was, if when the virus starts spreading or when people notice that they lose their sense of smell and taste, why aren't we giving them chloroquine? This is where the whole hype comes from. It kills the virus in them, and all they're going to get is a bit of a skin rash as a secondary symptom. Now, the f joke is the Chinese have treated people with chloroquine in hospital, and it seemed to have worked there. The South Koreans have the in the it in the guidelines. But for some re but in a time of crisis, and you know, Monsieur Macron has declared a war, une guerre contre le virus, you know, war against the virus, uh, which is utterly absurd. Because the government yeah, lose my, every war they declare. Okay, it's, it's a new war, and the South African government's also declared a war. So Cyril Mopoza is you know, on the same intelligence level as Emmanuel Macron. Um, so my view is, if we are in a war, do we have time to test the drug for randomized controlled trials? Or do we trust an expert in infectious diseases, the best expert in the world, according to Expertscape, in his own field? And, and um, you know, we ask him what treatment can we give for this drug? And he said, well, guys, chloroquine has been used by the Chinese. It's used by the guy who stopped the SARS virus in China. You know, not an idiot. It's used by the Koreans. I quickly did a lab test in France on 24 patients. It destroys the viral load. But yes, the test isn't randomized control. So we understand you haven't controlled for the placebo. But you have, you have essentially proven you can kill the viral load. It might be the guy's body because you're telling him you're giving him the medication. Who knows? But does that really matter? We have a quick solution to treat you. It empirically works. The new study that came out yesterday said that 700 people have been treated in Marseille. One person died and he was in his 90s. You know, he expected to die of this thing. So he proved that the viral load dies. You might still have some conditions afterwards. But why don't we give people a malaria drug very early and we stop all of this madness? And guess what? The French government is blocking him. They went the other route. They say, well, we're going to give chloroquine for compassionate use. So if you're lying in your deathbed, you can get a virus, a, a medication that can kill the viral load. The problem with that is at the time when you're getting that thing, uh, the virus is so big in your uh, uh, body already, so distributed and it's replicated so much that the dosage of chloroquine that you need will most likely kill you. Mm. It will probably give you a heart attack or it will give you um, blind, go, make you go blind. So, uh, you know, the, the French solution doesn't stop the, uh, <laughs> doesn't treat the problem. And the second thing is, I currently with COVID-19 cannot get chloroquine in Paris because the French government confiscated everything from the pharmacies because everyone's running to get malaria pills. Um, and they said it's only going to be used at hospitals. Okay. This is complete stupidity on so many levels. Unfortunately, other governments have followed something similar. Luckily, I believe today the FDA in America said doctors can do it with the consent of the patient. And that's what I'm asking for. I'm saying as a patient, I understand that chloroquine hasn't gone through a randomized controlled trial. I'm not stupid enough not to know that it means that there's no placebo and maybe they can be have secondary effects. But I'm willing to take that risk, sitting here with COVID-19, sweating my butt off and kill the virus inside of my body. You know, why shouldn't ordinary adults be able to take that decision? So what does Senegal do? Senegal doesn't phone epidemiologists. They go to the doctor who has treated the crisis in Ebola. And I want to get the name of the doctor because I believe he deserves uh, credit for this thing. Okay. And he says, well, I've been a student of Professor Raoul in France. Maybe I'm going to phone the best expert in the world in infectious diseases. And he gets all of chloroquine. So Senegal is giving everyone malaria tablets. And I suspect that their death rate will be much lower than even South Korea's. Okay. And I suspect that um, they're not going to shut down the economy and they're going to go on as if life is normal. But um, we cannot do it. I do not know what treatment they're giving in South Africa because the minister doesn't tell us. Um, I hope it's chloroquine.
but if they're honest about it, the first thing they must say, we are going to use chloroquine because it costs $5 per tablet, about 50 cents in South African terms per, 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 per pill. You know, it's not very expensive. Most people in Africa can buy it. So they op- the, the, the French government put a, you know, it's how you screw up a crisis because now they've banned a drug which costs nothing. And anyone who was on the big pharma conspiracy theory is now given a lot of ammunition because the alternative drug they want to give people is some HIV drug which costs something like $300. So you can see the incentive for the government not to give the drug. But I don't think that, you know, there's conspiracy behind it. I think it's just blatant stupidity. Honestly, um, as you say that, I can't help but actually start believing the big pharma conspiracy. Um, and I'm very anti those sorts of conspiracies normally. Um, so, um, Senegal, how, for this bet, how are you going to measure what clarifies the success? What is, what is actually going to be success in general coming out of what a lot of people think is the apocalypse? So, the, um, first of all, is you need this. Okay, you need to have data. Um, this might be where Senegal might fall out of it. I don't mm-hmm. think they've got the money to test everyone. But um, I initially thought that you need data for everything. Uh, I suspect I was wrong. Um, and there was a point the German made about this. He said Germany testing 500,000 people, you know, a week is totally absurd. You know, for example, you can go and test a house and it's most likely that three people in the house are going to get infected. And you tell everyone, well, if you lose your sense of taste and smell, you all take the pill. So you can do it more optimal by testing fewer people and just testing smarter. Um, so Senegal might fall out a bit out of tests, but I would say, um, you know, if the economy goes on and if the test data to the extent that we can rely on them, you know, tells us that the logistics curve has been reached its maximum. So to explain the logistic curves, a virus replicates every four years, uh, four days, and it replicates until it goes to a point where the number of infected people and the number of people that cannot be infected, so the number of people that should be infected the next day, the next, you know, next four days, next double number, if there's not enough people to infect, the virus dies. So the quicker you have your logistics curve going to the top, the quicker the whole population is infected or treated. And this is actually how you nip a virus in the butt, is that you try and stop the spread of the virus by treating the viral load so that the people who have the virus cannot spread it. So in a sense, if you're a patient, I've got a virus, I've not got symptoms. Stopping the virus from spreading has got nothing to do with treating my symptoms. It's two different things. First of all, you kill the virus in my body so I cannot infect anyone else. And then if I'm in ICU, you treat me for for recovery. And it seems to me lost in the process this the, the distinction between the two. They want to have a magic pill that's going to treat me and kill the virus. I think the big problem talking about the magic pill idea is that in according to the actual people want a 100% cure that's called the COVID-19, anti-COVID-19 vaccine, whatever. But also they want an easy solution for getting rid of this entire thing. And this is where I think the um, the lockdown mentality comes from is they want the government to do something, they don't care what it is, because they're afraid of the truth, which is there's no easy way out of this. Because no. disease is not fun, and it doesn't actually tie into our futuristic models of what utopia should look like. Uh, disease so, basically... Were, uh, there's no actual political ideology that deals with disease, and this is why everyone freaks out about it. Well, this is, okay, just to, I want to say the doctor in Senegal, his name is Musa Saidi. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Seems to be a very intelligent person, and he's been saying we're going to test people and we're going to treat them. And we're going to give them chloroquine. It's going to kill the virus. I want to keep on Senegal. Um, yes, your point is uh, is quite valid. People wanted the governments to do, and I think this is the problem. People were panicking, and the governments were panicking. They said, "Okay, let's close down everything and hope the virus goes away." You know, well, it, it doesn't work that way in the reality. Um, then. I think it's just a lot of people were becoming experts about subjects that they absolutely know nothing about. And unfortunately, they were advising the government. And I blame the epidemiologists for a lot of this. I believe that they, it is a bit of a fluke you know, profession. You know, you put models and you assume the virus is going to spread according to these models. Okay, that worked for virus A. Does it work for virus B? Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. It's some tool to use, but we shouldn't come to believe in our models. So, you know, this is a classic case of Thomas Sowell's book, The Conflict of Visions, where people have a utopian vision. I just say they have a model vision. They believe the model is good. And then they don't ask, well, does it work? You know, is it true? And it seems to me that your confinement doesn't work. Isolating people doesn't work. Not testing does not work. And not treating people early does not work. So at the moment, the government in France's response is we can only treat you if you're in the ICU. So we're going to wait for everyone to be in the ICU or it's just suck it up and stay at home. And so sadly, the South African government's response is probably worse because they're trying to do what China is doing. 
without the calling actual the army and will or capacity to do that. Calling the army without having an army, you know. Yeah, Luckily, exactly. South Africa does not have does not have an army. Oh, yeah. and <laughs> thankfully for that. Thankfully for that, and surprisingly, uh, I, I forgot about what you pointed out in your article about the high prevalence of HIV and AIDS in the army, mm. and. That's you know something worrying. Can you have soldiers who potentially have HIV and AIDS patrolling the streets? What happens if they get infected? Because in France, a great deal of the police that are so-called telling us going to house are infected. <laughs> There's actually another stat which is even scarier, which I didn't put in that article because I read it in a journal article years ago, and I sadly could not find it in time to cite it. You know, in time for publishing the article. But there's a podcast, so it's different rules. I read a thing a long, a few years ago that the South African military peacekeeping forces, you know, that would go out and aid the UN and stuff and um, help in peacekeeping operations throughout Africa, is one of the largest spreaders of an incurable strain of TB in the world. Oh, well. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> To yeah. the extent that is true, that, that, that worries me if they spread into the township areas. But, you know, let's just talk about the, the unenforceability of this thing. I mean, I saw soldiers yesterday on Sky, Sky News, I think it was, in I think it was Alexandria Township, where they were ordering people to go around. And people were just, you know, absolutely showing them the finger. The soldiers yeah. were so demotivated. You saw policemen trying to take homeless people to shelters, although most people told go home and they were like well guys we don't have homes you know <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not that simple so uh, this is the other problem of trying to replicate the chinese model which costs a hell of a lot of resources south africa doesn't have that money to mobilize the army i honestly don't even think the army's got the will to enforce this thing i think they also the soldiers there they look to me either they were on a power trip or they were completely bought hmm. and you know uh, talking about having an army on the roads that's very dangerous you know i, so I always say my father was in the township riots in the 80s and you know when you talk to the men who served during the apartheid army at the time first of all they were not men they were boys okay they were 19 19 years old because governments always recruit unwise men to fight their wars mm. you know when you can just you know mess with his mind a little bit and the younger the better um, the other thing that they didn't do at the time is there was no formal training to the army and to an extent to the apartheid police of how to control crowds now, the South African police, with all their faults, you know, you know how useless they can be, at least they've got some ability to control crowds. So I'd be more comfortable if only they are on the streets. But now we have the army on the streets, and we're already seeing guys with little God and little man syndrome, you know, trying to lose their tempers because every second South African is a bit drunk on the go. And that's going to continue, you know. That's exactly. Um, I think in general, there's shouldn't there's not an army in the world that is a traditional army that should actually be deployed in civilian areas, purely because if you have an army that is made to occupy civilian territories, um, and it's either supposed to be an occupying force whose job is to quell insert local insurgents, or its job is to um, kill the civilians it's they shouldn't be on our streets their job is to go and occupy other people's streets like Lesotho that they keep failing to invade every few decades um <laughs> did you see the press conference that apparently um some state officials said that uh, we have 10 provinces so then so then oh well that, that's so the um so my uncle commented um oh well we all know what this entire thing was about it's just an excuse to invade so uh, Lesotho again well, I, I've got a friend from Lesotho, and he was laughing when I, when you know, the president said that, or the minister said that, um, you know. By the way, in Lesotho also, they don't really know what to do about this thing. Um, you know, it's a, I, look, African country. I can understand the governments to an extent that I can always understand, not understand them. Um, they wanted to do something, and I'm going to show they're doing something. You know, it's a lot of fake it until you make it over here, because they realize a, we're not China, b, we're not China, we're not South Korea, we cannot test everyone, and you know. The other, the, the other thing is the governments in Europe, okay, you know, let's talk about the semi-competent governments like Spain and Italy and France, their response was we're being invaded, we're going to declare war. Okay, we're going to declare war on a virus. Now, the only way to kill a virus during a war is to shoot the host. Are you going to shoot all the people in the streets? No. So what the hell is the army going to do? Well, at the moment, they're trying to boss us around, okay, um, you know, and they don't want to do it. You can see it. Then you ask yourself, well, this South African army, and this figure I have got in my head, is costing us 650 million rands. Okay? This is in a time when the country is begging the, going to beg the IMF for a bailout to be on the street. Now, if you take all that money, and let's assume we actually had it, couldn't you just buy test kits and test people? Exactly. It's, but I think we can just – there's a safe assumption. I, I, Earlier in this podcast, I said that isn't it comforting to – and I said very sarcastically um, – 
isn't it comforting to know that our governments are consistently wrong? Uh, but they it, it, obviously it's not nice, but it's very frustrating. You have to make humor out of it so you can survive. Um, that I think that it's generally safe to say that the South African government, they will make the wrong decision. Give them a choice and they'll always choose the wrong answer. I bet you you could get, tell them, what, ask them once two plus two, give them answers A, four, or well, Zuma B, proved that red, <laughs> and then they'll, they'll answer red. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, you know what, um, one thing that I found remarkable, well, about the German government to the extent that you can be inspired by government. There's a good advisor to the German government, which his name was, it's also, by the way, a virologist. Germany's being advised by a virologist, mm. and that's why they say and test everyone. I think the guy's name is Trosten, Christian Trosten, or something of the sort. And, uh, you know, it's, this is the other benefit of speaking languages that I can interpret different governments and their own stupidities. But he made an important point, and he said, before we go on, you know, with this response to the virus, we must know that this is the first time since. World War II that we're telling the Germans not to leave their homes. You know, that statement say, gave a lot of insight and depth. Do you see the same mm. thing from Becky Kelly? I mean, uh, you know, you see, you see a guy with a cowboy hat saying bang, bang, yeah, bang, bang. You know, it's, exactly. it's, it's as if the, the guys have got absolutely no inner dialogue and they do not understand the gravity of the situation. I mean, if you tell South Africans, especially those living in townships, that the army is going to come back, you know, after what they suffered through through the 80s, and you think that there's not going to be a backlash, there's not going to be riots, there's not going to be people pissed off or throwing rocks and stones at the army. You know, you're living in fantasy land. Exactly. It's complete. Um, there's no self-awareness or there, and there's no awareness of the world and history in our government. You can't even believe that these people like Becky Sally or however it's pronounced, uh, I don't feel that criminals' names should be pronounced properly. So if I pronounce it correctly, it's by accident. Um yeah should um is he even uh, he's old enough to know what happened in the 80s did he just forget some about of those, it some of the, some of those people at least they claim were freedom fighters you know yeah well but you uh, know I... it's it's a typical thing <laughs> yeah whatever freedom know. fighter is you yeah know, i don't i don't think the so, nc should claim that title to be completely honest but yeah no freedom 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 you know it's a Johann wolfgang von Goethe statement who said none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free yeah you know and I, I, if that's so applicable to anc supporters um for me you though, know yeah just, just be until someone starts thinking oh i think that apartheid is it was free up sorry it's africa so i have to make this statement before i get arrested um is um no i don't think the anc were freedom fighters because i think that other non-anc liberation movements actually participated made more of a, uh, had more of an effect and i think that the anc were just better at playing the uh, the the, stra the strategic game and basically profited off the blood of their political opponents i think people like steve biko and i think the people who led the soweto uprisings and i think people who led the mass movements like desmond tutu and stuff had a lot and also i think the people who just uh, um i think that the foreign sanctions uh, were much more important than the nc i think the nc yeah, were just opportunists it's another topic for another day i think it, yeah. it was a if it were a team effort if you will and whoever contributed the most in a uh, when a public became resistant is uh, you know you're just doing an intellectual exercise i mean even within afrikaner circles and it was afrikaners who supported the government the most at the time there was a lot of dissent and there was lots of um what do you call it cognitive dissidents i give you good examples in my own house my grandfather was a firm supporter of the national party you know there's no secret about it but it was too far for him for black people not to study so you know for his gardeners and domestics at the time he allowed these kids to study and took them to university you know, but he supported the government, okay? Uh, and, you know, if the security police would come in, sometimes they would let them sleep in their beds at night. And, you know, it's not that he was some kind of saint. A lot of Afrikaners had these inherent contradictions in the system. And ultimately, I believe it's these contradictions which bring a system about, you know. The people who contributed the most to the fall of apartheid, yes, it was Tutu did a lot, Biko did a lot, Mandela did a lot. You can name the people on the list and you can rate them from 1 to 10 and say, well, okay, this is my hero. But, you know, um, I, I I always have a bit of a skepticism against people being heroes. I mean, mm. you take somebody like Martin Luther King, you know, um, yes, he was a very good, uh, you know, humanist freedom fighter, but he probably plagiarized his doctorate degree and cheated on his wife, you know. <laughs> so I think a lot, of, a lot of people go like, well, I can do that. I can also be great, you know. It's just you need to understand that people have got inherent contradictions exactly. and, um, you know, whatever, you know, this is a, another day we can talk about the apartheid regime. Mm. Um, but yeah, let's assume they were 
the best freedom fighters and they were the goody, goody two-shoes at the time, then shouldn't they at least have some kind of sensibility and to say, um, you know what, guys, um, maybe talk to the army and say to them, let's be careful that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past because we are also human. We can also do so. No, nothing of the sort. You know, it's like we're going to beat the shit out of you and you're going to tell you to go into your home. That was sort of the impression I got of them. You know, maybe not in those words, but, you know, they think they're going to try and use force to get people to abide by rules and they don't take into account you know the average person in those township areas it's for him is bread and butter you know if he does not go to the market to the day to trade a little bit and to win a little bit in life um, you know he doesn't have food on his plate and sometimes they've got families back home to feed so i would also be angry and not obey the rules had i been you know you, you have to do this sensibly and so south african government is just a horribly you know, the response is just plain stupidity. Mm. And the people who supported it, I'm sorry, they just didn't think for themselves. Um, yeah. You know, that, that theory can work in China. We are not China. And I do not want to see our army take people, locking them out, throwing them in rooms and locking the doors shut. A lot of those Chinese probably committed suicide, you know, from being isolated like that. What if you want to get to your family? You know, it's 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 a sick system in China. And, you know, I, I'm of the view that China is an evil empire. Mm. And I hope if there's one good thing from coming from all of this is that a lot of people who are talking good about China and a lot of countries in the West who thought China was good enough to produce us cheap labor and, you know, cheap goods, a lot of them would look at China with a great deal more skepticism and you know, require open sea, require from them to not treat their citizens, you know, in ways that we would not approve of ourselves being treated. Yeah, this actually um, goes back to something which we only touched on uh, for a few seconds humorously, but the actual propaganda campaign of what the name of this um, pandemic and um, the, the efforts that China has gone to try to redirect the blame away from itself where um, it's not just this COVID-19 and all the names that should be called Wuhan pneumonia, Wuhan flu, Wu Kung flu, flu, like Kung flu is good. The uh, Comic Corona is the one that I thought of today and I like. There's also Bat Super Blues, which I uh, also like. Um, is that they should, if Spanish flu is allowed to be called that, and we haven't changed that name, um, and also there's plenty of these other diseases as well, which are named after geographical location, um, the Chinese, basically, by trying to redirect the and calling, accusing it of being racist, effectively just. Um, but you know, that's yeah. just childish. You know, this yeah. is this whole thing about the SJW. That's another good thing from this virus. Hopefully, people can stop their shit and realize how stupid those, those conversations were. Exactly. Um, you know, the thing is, it comes from China. It is the Chinese coronavirus because it originated there. Okay. Um, it, I. I would say there's a, there were lots of brave people from China, a lot of brave Chinese who tried to get the information out, but they were silenced. There were lots of brave doctors to try and get the treatment out, okay? And they probably will be silenced for what they've done. Um, but unfortunately, um, the Chinese government is an evil empire, and it is a Chinese virus. I don't hold it against all Chinese people. I hold it against the government, not for having the virus. The virus broke out on a market it could have happened in africa it could have happened anywhere anywhere where you bring animals together you know you have a chance of, of, of viruses jump it's the fact that they kept things secret exactly. from the world and the fact that you know the economy they're going to shrink the world economy the chinese economy from what i've seen when there's some economic predictions is put at like eight percent it's going to shrink what about all those millions of people in china who lose their work what about in this is the other thing i want the people to think about that is calling for confinement are they going to go back and tell those black people who are in the townships who are being going to you know being policed like some idiot, uh, you know, uh, or the people, you know, in France who are now sitting in their homes. Today, I read 1.2 million French have already apply, uh, apply for unemployment benefits. Are they going to tell those people that the reason why we shut down the world economy, okay, was worth your jobs being lost exactly. and, you know, the potential lives being lost? So, unfortunately, there was not a lot of thinking in all of this. You know, there was no sensible balance of things. Um, it's just panic, react. And we are going to sit, you know, for a few months, I hope, you know, if not years of government screwed it up with the aftermath of this virus. And I don't, I don't know, I have a solution to that. You know, I, I don't even know if my job is going to be safe because I work in the oil and gas industry. And, uh, you know, if you look at the oil price at the moment, even my boss was panicking when I spoke to him the other day. Um, and I think that, go that goes to the actual title of my um, latest article. 
is the cure worse than disease? And I think that from what we've discussed in this podcast, definitely. Um, well, not definitely. There's There may be a chance that we're both wrong and this thing actually is truly apocalyptic and maybe it's going to mutate into some weird <laughs> pneumonic plague. But from what I see right now... Um, an alcohol prohibition and a cigarette prohibition like what's happening in South Africa will not help that. Uh, middle class housewives who have nothing better to do snitching on their neighbors because they because uh, they dare to uh, walk their dog People for a few bored, minutes. Eh? God, there's um, what I've also realized of this is I have never been this ashamed to be a English middle class white ma- man <laughs> in my now life. You know why we hated you guys all these years. Eh? <laughs> I will say that um, there's uh, well, I will say that I've been seeing Afrikaners being snitches as well. The only oh, yes. the, the I will say that of the South African groups, I haven't seen any black people or coloured people being snitches. And I must say that maybe Ubuntu does exist, and it's basically snitches get stitches. <laughs> but that yeah, also. I, 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 but th- this is the funny thing is that the uh, people who respect the ANC's rule most are the ones least likely to vote for them. Exactly. Um, you know. Um, <laughs> White people follow the laws and vote against it. Black people vote for the laws and disobey them. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know you're going to get flack for that statement. I'm going to get flack for it. But obviously yeah, I'm mean... doing a South African generalization there. I think that – I do think that the ANC, unless they pull some sort of magic out of this, will not win the next election because well, of their reaction I, I, to I this. Just, I just want to say I, I know you're from Cape Town. I'm from – and in Pretoria, people are even the whites are far less likely to, you know, follow the rules, especially when it comes to corrupting the police and the, <laughs> the speed cops and the things of this sort, you know. And I suspect, by the way, this is one thing that I haven't gotten into, which you know, I'm theorizing about, is that, you know, during Germany there was a big black market of cigarettes, you know, which actually stimulated the uh, Wirtschaftswunder, you know, the Germans rebuilding the economy. I wonder if South Africa is not going to be driven by a black market and cigarettes, you know, to try and rebuild our economy. <laughs> so I read an article came out while we were recording this podcast uh, that someone sent me, and it is that the government is apparently in talks to remove the prohibitions. So three days. It's been three days, right? Yeah, three days, and we're already okay, so <laughs> we're the the holiday. That is the most sensible thing that a South African government has done since 1994. (laughs) I will say that they haven't passed it yet, so we shouldn't give them the credit just yet. Um, So, um, are there any closing statements or any other big topics that are essential to our understanding of the... Well, and we have to, you know, be fast about this because you are of course going to be dying soon um, yeah guys so this is my last will and testament and uh, you know if i if i don't die i know my sister gets everything or my fiance i haven't actually updated my will i've now Ooh. thinking of that <laughs> you know so but yeah, no i mean um just the thing is i think this thing is totally overblown i think the statistics back it up i think the facts back it up history backs it up um, the economic fallout, we need to all think of this. I suspect what's going to happen economically is people are going to go for cash because you're going to, you know, have some, uh, you know, you need some money to keep the economy running while nobody's producing anything. Um, we are in very uncharted government uh, territories, and I hope that the governments, as a reaction of this, do not incre- decrease interest rates, you know, uh, increase credit bubbles. The things that they did after 2008, which obviously didn't work. The sensible thing for any government would be, you know, and you know, both our governments, both the French and South Africa, are not very sensible at the moment, would be to do nothing and to wait, mm. and to wait and see how the economy kickstarts itself. Because one thing the coronavirus is doing is it's accelerating some technologies. Okay, um, for example, I was reading that uh, about restaurants in Europe. Before the crisis, I was re- watching a documentary with my fiance, and it uh, was showing that indoor kitchens, you know, Mr. Delivery basically, is now bigger in UK than it is in um, normal restaurants. Okay, so more people are getting proper meals, you know, delivered to their door as opposed to going to a restaurant. So those trends, you know, the online internet trends have been accelerated by this virus. Mm. Amazon is still recruiting people even while the virus is killing people, you know. Bezos being a capitalist that he is. Um, But, you know, uh, so this is why the economy will not be the same afterwards. So we unfortunately have to wait and see how it plays out. I believe if it will take some time, I believe the communities will support each other. Um, You know, I hope people are more angry at the government for collective stupidity. Um, But South Africa is downgraded. We are junk status. 
after Easter, a lot of people will lose their jobs. You know, let's face the reality. And I hope people will ask themselves, are we work worth it? Is it worth it? And then just as a closing statement on this, I was reading a lot this week about the uh, Kierkegaard revolutions. And the Kierkegaard revolution says that it is the society that changed, but the buildings keep standing. Mm. Okay. And the, the point was usually after plagues, you found this, that people, not a lot of people died in the plagues, but they lost the faith in authorities. Um, and I wonder what is going to happen in the heads of many people around the world, especially many governments that react badly like ours after this virus. Are they going to continue the same old structures and perhaps for some time, or will there be some political? and social change coming from this and it has to come from somewhere in the world maybe not at us but some other country you know i think that's um on that topic we have the pandemic and we have a we're going to be having a global recession two sparking factors which we know that 2008 resulted in arab spring um and we know that things like the spanish flu contributed towards not only um well to a lot of the rise of a lot of authoritarian politics but we also know the black death resulted in the growth of the middle class so um i'm very tentatively you're, you're excited hoping this is the black death <laughs> no okay i don't want to be the black death the and the reason that the black death results in the middle class is because it killed a lot of workers so workers became more valuable so then they had to start paying them more because they became the, the um yeah they became more valuable mechanization will make this different though because well one one yeah. sensible thing that can come of this and it's a very sad say is if you look at the countries like Italy, um, especially in Spain, they've got very old populations. Mm. And this means that a lot of young people have to pay back their pensions. And those countries have suffered a great deal in this time. And I suspect that if there's good to come out of this country out of somebody's death, you know, it's very horrible to say it. Yeah. It means that a lot of those young people can have another second chance because a lot of people in Spain and Italy are leaving their countries in faster rates than the brain drain in South Africa, by the way. This is one thing I realized when I came to Europe, is that the brain drain is not unique to South Africa. You see people from the Middle East, from Spain, from Italy, from Greece, all of them leaving their countries for France, Germany, UK, and America, yeah. because that's where the opportunities are. And if South Africa does not create an environment for opportunities, we'll see a same trend. You know, So that is the, you know, the, I would say, the closing thing. We have to think of you know, opportunity, you know, opportunities and unfortunately that means less government you know i think that's a good way i think that's a good note to end it on that this is all apocalyptic but after every apocalypse there are opportunities now thank you for listening to the uh, rational stand podcast thank you for um sharing your well-researched and interesting ideas with us hugo um, thank you very much and i look forward to uh, um hearing more from you if you survive of course um on the website if you would like to read my articles or hugo's articles you can go to rationalstandard.com and you can also follow us on facebook which is just search for rational standard and you can also follow us on twitter but if you're on twitter um my condolences um i hope that you are surviving the quarantine and we will hear and you can hear from us soon Cheers. Thank you. Thank you very much.